بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله Alhamdulillah, this is lesson 97 in the Radiant Light covering the life of the Prophet ﷺ in the Medinan period. And last week we finished our discussion of the events that took place in the fifth year after the Hijrah. And we were looking at some of the minor saraya expeditions and ghazawat that took place between the Battle of Al-Ahzab and the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah, which is coming up today, insha'Allah. And last week, it was mostly a look at these saraya. We covered a dozen of them. I intended to cover 13, but we ran out of time. So today, insha'Allah, we're going to cover uh, the remaining four of those saraya that took place between Khandaq and Hudaybiyah. And then we go into the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah, which is a very pivotal moment in the seerah of the Prophet And the Hudaybiyah discussion will span across a couple of classes because it's a very pivotal moment. So we left off last week on the 13th Sariya that took place in this period between Khandaq and Hudaybiyah. And this is the Sariya of Zayd ibn al-Haritha. And he's been on many of these, as we mentioned last week. This one, the 13th, was to a place called Maidan. And this is off of the Red Sea coast. And it's a six-day walk from Tabuk. So it's towards the north and off to the Red Sea coast. And he was sent there with just a handful of fighters. And they took some captives and that was all. It was otherwise uneventful. And that was number 13. The 14th Sariya is the Sariya of Abdullah ibn Atiq to assassinate Salam ibn Abi Huqayq. And this is a story that we should be familiar with because everything we said about the background and reason for the assassination of Ka'ab ibn al-Ashraf is said regarding this incident as well in terms of the reasoning behind it and the motivation and the basis for it in history and in law. So Salam ibn Abi Huqayq was just like Ka'ab ibn al-Ashraf in that he was rallying people against the Prophet wasallam and using his money to fight against the Prophet wasallam and the Muslim community. In fact, he was one of the financiers of some of the Ahzab in the Battle of Ahzab. He gave his money to outfit some of the tribes and give them equipment and whatnot. So some of the Khazraj after the Battle of, of Ahzab had this idea that because of him continuing to behave in this manner and having financed hostilities against the community, he too must be dealt with in the same way that Ka'ab ibn al-Ashraf was dealt with. And the background 
has to do with this rivalry between the Aus and the Khazraj. Only this rivalry was positive. It wasn't a negative rivalry in any way. It was because the Aus were the ones who dealt with Ka'b ibn al-Ashraf. And so the Khazraj won an opportunity to do the exact same thing that the Aus did towards Ka'b. So they presented this idea to the Prophet ﷺ and he gave them permission and instructed the small group to go out and gave them the counsel that they should be very mindful, very careful of avoiding uh, any women and any children in that attack against this individual, Salam ibn Abi Huqayq. So as we said, everything about Ka'b ibn Ashraf and the reasons for how he was dealt with apply to this individual as well. So it was five people who went out from the Khazraj to deal with this individual. And the leader of this small group was the Sahabi Abdullah ibn Atik. He was chosen to be the leader because unlike the other companions, he had lots of history with these people and interactions in Khaybar. In fact, he was able to speak and understand the Hebrew, Arabic, mishmash dialect of the people of Khaybar. So he understood this Hebrew, Arabic hybrid dialect they spoke, which meant that it would be easier for him than others to get inside and pose as one of their own. And that is the reason why he was appointed as the Amir to lead this. Now Ibn Hisham, in his seerah, he records that when they got to Khaybar, and the battle of Khaybar has not yet happened yet, but when they get to Khaybar, they were hiding outside of the compound, because it's a fortress-like place. They're hiding outside of it, laying low until nighttime, so there wouldn't be many people roaming around inside, outside, going in and out, so they wouldn't be noticed. And it was only at nightfall that they tried to get inside. Now there's a couple of conflicting accounts about how they got inside. They get inside, one narration says, by ascending some stairs. It's very ambiguous. Some stairs they, they used to get inside of the compound. One narration says that Abdullah bin Atik had the others hidden as he was outside of the compound at night pretending to uh, answer the call of nature as the guard was about to close the door for the night because that's how they would do it. The doors or the gates leading into these uh, fortresses, these compounds that would you know, wall off the area, they would typically be open during the day and closed at night so no intruders can come in. And it says that he was outside pretending as if he's answering the call of nature and the guard announces he's about to close the door and he says, hold up, wait a minute, let me finish and I'm coming right in. And he's saying it in the dialect, so they think he's one of them. So he pretends to finish his business and quickly run and get inside before the guard closes the door. And he bid his time hiding out inside. And after a while, he was able to open the door and let the others in from the outside. So now that they're inside of this fortress, and when I say fortress, you have to understand that because this is a Jewish area, it's built in the same way as the forts of Banu Qaynuqar and Banu Nadir and Banu Quraidah, where they would have these 
fortresses or these compounds, walled compounds, keeping the people inside, uh, protecting them from any outsiders. Um, so they wait for this opportunity. He gets the door open and they come inside. So now they're trying to find their way to get to the house of Salam ibn Abi Huqayq. They find the house. They go inside very quietly at night. And as they're getting inside, sneaking in, his wife sees them. As the wife sees him, one of them draws his sword. And he signals to her that she must remain silent. But then he remembered the counsel of the Prophet ﷺ. You have to avoid the women. And so he sheaths the sword back. Now it says in Ibn Hisham's account that the actual place where Salam was sleeping was there in the house, but his actual room was only accessible by a ladder. So it's kind of hard to imagine what that would look like. But if you understand mud houses and how they're built, you can probably imagine that inside of a mud house, you could have a second floor and access to that second floor would only be accessible by a ladder. So this is why I say there's conflicting accounts because one says they got in by a ladder and you get the impression that they climbed a ladder to get inside of the, the whole fort. This narration says a ladder inside of the house itself, the house of Salam. So it says that he was sleeping inside of this room only accessible by a ladder. So she's silent, the wife, she's quiet, and they go up the ladder and then they launch their attack and they're successful and they, they deal that death blow for this financier of war. Now the hadith mentions that after they did that, they want to make sure they can escape because if anyone sounds the alarm, they're stuck inside and even if they manage to get outside, once people know they're going to chase them, they're going to hunt them down, they're going to kill them. So the narration says that as they're trying to rush out before anyone can sound an alarm or shout, uh, Abdullah ibn Atiq, in his rush to get out from inside of the room to go down the ladder again, he actually slips. He falls down and he breaks his foot. This is a huge problem because you can't just leave a man behind like that. So the other individuals on this mission had to carry Abdullah ibn Atiq and take turns carrying him in different groups until they could reach safety. So they managed to get out and carry him, and they basically moved by night and hid by day and tracked their movement to make sure no one's following them. And they eventually get back to Medina. When they get back to Medina, the Prophet ﷺ sees them and says, Your faces are faces of success. And they see him and they say, Ya Rasulullah, your face is the face of success. Now going to Abdullah bin Atiq, his foot was injured, but they made it out alive. The mission was a success, and this is counted as a sariyah because it was an armed expedition. And like I said, everything that we would say about Ka'b ibn al-Ashraf and how he was dealt with applies to Salam ibn Abi Huqayq. And this is what you would call a targeted assassination of someone contributing militarily and financially to conflict that endangers the lives of others. So that's number 14. There's a 15th and a 16th one. The 15th one was the Sariya of Abdullah ibn Rawaha. 
to assassinate Yusayr ibn Rizam, also called Usayr. Because when Salam ibn Abi Huqayq was assassinated, the, the people of Khaybar appointed as their chief this individual named Yusayr ibn Rizam. So when he was assassinated and Yusayr was appointed, uh, he wanted to get some revenge. So he tried to ally with some of the tribesmen of Ghatafan, and they were planning some kind of revenge attack. Word of that gets back to the Prophet and the Muslims. So the Prophet sent Abdullah bin Rawaha with just three other people in the month of Ramadan not to preemptively attack, but just to investigate and see what's really going on, how many people are they gathering for this attempt at revenge. So Abdullah bin Rawaha with three others, they journey back to that same area. They get out there, they see that this is true, that they're planning this. They quickly make their way back to Medina and inform the Prophet wasallam that it's true. Upon which the Prophet ﷺ decides to send him with 30 men to go back. Now you, maybe you're thinking, 30 men, that's a pretty small group. Uh, would that be enough? But you see how things play out. So this is Ramadan, at the tail end of Ramadan, when he was sent to investigate. He comes back and he's told to get 30 more, and they set out. Now it's the month of Shawwal, so we've now gone into the next month. They go out in the month of Shawwal and they make their way to Khaybar, but they're not going for a sneak attack or for an ambush or even for a raid. There wasn't a direct action. They went there seeking Aman. What does that mean? It means they go there seeking a guarantee of security and protection, acting as ambassadors on behalf of the Prophet So you see here, that's the reason why 30 were sent and not a large force, because it was initially, it was to respond, but not to necessarily respond militarily. So they go there and they seek an aman, they seek this guarantee of security, and they're granted the aman, and they say to him that the Prophet sent us to summon you that he may put you in charge of Khaybar and be good to you. So they're giving the opportunity on behalf of the Prophet Sallallahu to recognize Yusayr as the chief and to have an understanding between the two of them that whatever was done to Salam, there was a reason for that. You don't need to get yourself dragged into things you weren't involved in. So we will respect your position and recognize you as the chief. He will be good to you. There'll be no hostilities from our end as long as there's no hostilities on your end. And so this was agreed to. He accepted that offer. And to solidify this agreement, Yusayr or Usayr, there's different accounts, he wanted to go to Medina at the suggestion of some of the companions that it would be better. In order to solidify the agreement, they felt it would be better to formally come to Medina and sit before the Prophet ﷺ to formalize that understanding. And so he agreed to go along with that. So the narrations say that he went with 30 Jewish men from Khaybar on this trip with the other 30 companions. 
to go to Medina and sit before the Prophet But it mentions that as they were getting closer to Medina, it appeared that Yusayr began to regret this. This desire for revenge uh, was still within him. And he was having second thoughts about this agreement and thought that this would be an opportunity to get revenge. So he's looking for an opportunity and he thought that the opportunity would be found in betraying that agreement and attacking those 30 riders of the Muslims who were with them on the way to Medina. So as they're making their way on the camels, Abdullah ibn Unais, who's on this trip, he's paying attention to Yusay and watching his body language. And he senses that he's having second thought and he's looking at his men quietly communicating. And then he sees him attempting to draw his sword. What does that mean? It means that they intend to break this agreement and attack the Muslim riders that were riding along with them. Abdullah ibn Unay sees this before anyone else does. And as he saw him beginning to draw his sword, he's close to him. He shoves the man's camel, Yusayr's camel, and says, Al-Ghadr, Al-Ghadr, betrayal. This man is betraying the agreement. So then he pushes the camel, says that, and then he strikes the thigh of Yusayr to knock him off of the camel. So there's a sword strike to knock him off of the camel. But the hadith mentions that Yusayr had this walking stick that he would use, and he used that stick just as he struck. He also swings the walking stick, and it slams into the head of Abdullah bin Unais, and he falls off, and now fighting ensues between these 30 uh, Jews of Khaybar and the 30 Muslims that were accompanying them. And this goes on until they were all defeated, except for one who managed to escape. So they eventually get back to the Prophet ﷺ, and when he's told about what happened, he says to those companions, Allah saved you from the oppressors. And then he called for Abdullah bin Unais, who had this really bad head wound from being struck by that stick. And he calls for him, he does the nafath, you know, the light blowing with a little bit of spittle, makes dua over his head. And alhamdulillah, the head wound didn't get infected. It healed up perfectly fine, and he was okay. So that was the, fourth, the 15th uh, sariya that took place between Khaybar, sorry, between Khandaq and Al-Hudaybiyah, this treaty. Now we come to the final one, the final sariya. And this sariya is known as the sariya of Qurz ibn Jabir. And it was a sariya to some people, not all, some people of uh, Urayna. These are a, a Bedouin group of people, a Bedouin clan. And there's a story behind this, and there's also a verse in the Quran that alludes to this incident. This took place in Shawwal, and it refers to a, a, a moment, an event where some people from Ukul and Urayna some Bedouins came to the Prophet ﷺ and embraced Islam and gave their bay'ah, their pledge of loyalty to the Prophet ﷺ. Now the hadith mentions that when, when they became Muslim, they decided to reside in Medina for some time. But it says that the climate of Medina did not agree with them. One narration says that there was even 
uh, a mild sickness that was going around, a contagion that people were getting sick. And other people may have been used to that because of the climate, but they were not used to it. Their constitution could not take it. It's like a person who, you know, they spend their whole life in America and then they decide to go somewhere in the East and they eat the food and drink the water and they just get sick. Other people may get that too, but it wouldn't affect them as much as it would outsiders who are not used to that. So they're in Medina, they're affected by the climate, they're getting sick, and they complain to the Prophet ﷺ about their condition. The Prophet ﷺ decides to send them out of the city, about six miles from Medina, where the climate will be different and better for them, and they will be away from all of that so that they would recover and had them go to this area where many of the camels belonging to the Muslims would graze. So they remained there. And once they were there, seeing all of these camels, remember camels is big money. So you, see, you can't do a perfect comparison, but it would be like going into you know, a, car, a, a, a car lot miles from the city unattended except by one person who has all of the keys to nice cars. You know, you could take all the cars, right? So they get there, and there's one Muslim man who was tending to the camels. They attack this man. He manages to escape and run off. They chase him down, capture him, and torture him to death. They torture him to death. They they left the deen of Islam. They actually apostated, it says in the hadith. They left the deen. They pursued this man. They tortured him by cutting his hand and leg off from opposite sides. And they even did far gruesome, more gruesome things, uh, using hot nails and all this gruesome stuff, killing the man. And then eventually the word gets back to the Prophet wasallam that these boorish, uncouth individuals left the deen and committed a ghastly murder and robbed that man of all of these camels that he was looking after on behalf of the Muslims. So the Prophet ﷺ sent Hurz ibn Jabir anhu with 20 other horsemen to go pursue them and catch them, bring them to justice. Because you, you have to respond to that kind of attack. It's very gruesome. So they found these men eventually. They tied them up and brought them back to Medina. And the Prophet ﷺ ordered that they receive as punishment the exact same thing that they did to that man. And that's exactly the punishment that was meted out to them. And this is mentioned in Surah Al-Ma'idah where Allah Ta'ala reveals the penalty for hiraba. Hiraba is brigandry or highway robbery or terrorizing the roads, uh, even what people today call terrorism or irhab could also be applied to that, where you, uh, you damage not just human lives, but you also upset the safety and security of a whole society from your heinous actions. So the ayah in Surah Al-Ma'idah reveals that the jaza, the, the recompense or the penalty for those who wage war against Allah and His Messenger and spread corruption in the earth is that they receive the exact punishment that those people received. So that is referring to the crime of hiraba which they committed. 
And in the entire seerah of the Prophet وسلم, this is the only time the Prophet وسلم, punished people with qisas, you know, in the exact manner of the way they had murdered that individual. So that was the final sariya, because it was an expedition to catch them, the final sariya that took place between the Battle of Ahzab and the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah. So from here forth, we go into Hudaybiyah and post-Hudaybiyah. So we're now going to the sixth year and dealing with very momentous events that will shape the future of the Ummah. And so we talk about the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah. So first of all, Al-Hudaybiyah is a place and it is said that it is named after a well known as the well of Al-Hudaybiyah. It is also said that it's named after a very large tree in that area. It was not really a large village. It was definitely not a city. But the way where it's located, it's located in such a way that part of it is going into the Haram territory, encircling the Kaaba. So a part of that is in the Haram. And then the other part is outside of the boundary of the Haram. And it's about a day's walk from Mecca. If you were in the center of Mecca and walked, um, I want to say northwest, it, you would get there in about a day's walk. Now, this event, known as the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah, is also called a victory. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed a chapter in the Qur'an titled Surah Al-Fatih. And in Surah Al-Fatih, Allah ta'ala says in the beginning, we have indeed granted you a clear opening. Now a lot of people hear that and they think the clear opening refers to the conquest of Mecca. Fathu Mecca. Because Fath means opening, it also means victory or conquest. A lot of people think that when Allah says we've given you a clear Fath, it's referring to the Fath of Mecca the victory and conquest of Mecca. But this ayah was revealed in connection with the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah. So we're going to speak about the treaty today and next week, inshallah. We want to look at what led to it, how it transpired, and what were the long-term effects and wisdoms from that treaty. So in the Seerah works, what we find immediately is that this moment in the seerah is given two names. It is in some works called the event of Sulh al-Hudaybiyah, meaning the treaty, the peace agreement, the truce, the armistice of al-Hudaybiyah. And in some seerah works is called Ghazwat al-Hudaybiyah, which means the battle of al-Hudaybiyah. But we know from this incident that there was no fighting. So the question then becomes, why did some of them call it a ghazwa? And why did some of them call it a sulh or a peace treaty? And the answer is that those who called it a ghazwa, a battle, called it so because it almost became a ghazwa. It almost became a fight. And the Muslims, as you learn from the story, were prepared to fight when 
certain things were transpiring and there was a strong chance that might have happened. They were prepared to. And that's why they would call it ghazwa. The others call it a sulh or a treaty because that's what actually took place. And it's preferred to call it a sulh because that's exactly what it was. And the Prophet ﷺ likewise did not set out with the intention of fighting. They were prepared when things began to transpire that definitely threatened the possibility of fighting. Of fighting. But his initial journey was not for fighting at all. His journey was for one purpose and one purpose only. And that is Umrah, doing their Umrah. And so we call it Sulh al-Hudaybiyyah, or the Treaty of Hudaybiyyah. So toward the end of the sixth year of the Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ tells the companions that he wants to go on the Umrah and that he had a dream. In that dream, he saw that he had entered the Kaaba with his companions in safety, aminin. Some of them with heads that were shaved and others with hair that was cut. Meaning, after you perform the Umrah as a man, ideally you shave your head, and if you don't want to do that, you at least cut and trim your hair. So he had the dream that they had done that, and some had shaved their heads, and some had just cut their heads. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this in Surah Al-Fatih as well. In, in, in that chapter, Allah Ta'ala says, لَقَدْ صَدَقَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولَهُ الرُّؤْيَا بِالْحَقِّ لَتَدَخُلُنَّ الْمَسْجِدَ الْحَرَامَ إِنْ شَاءَ اللَّهُ آمِنِينَ مُحَلِّقِينَ رُؤُوسَكُمْ وَمُقَصِّرِينَ لَا تَخَافُونَ فَعَلِمَ مَا لَمْ تَعْلَمُوا فَجَعَلَ مِنْ دُونِ ذَلِكَ فَتْحًا قَرِيبًا Indeed, Allah will fulfill the messenger's dream in truth. Allah willing, you will surely enter the sacred masjid Aminin, in a state of aman, security, with some heads shaved and others with hair shortened, without fear. He knew what you did not know, so he first granted you the triumph at hand. This is an allusion to the Treaty of Al Hudaybiyah. So when the Prophet told the companions about this dream, they were overjoyed. Because now there's a clear prospect of them finally being able to go after six years of conflict back and forth to go from Medina, Darul Hijrah, to Mecca to perform the Umrah. So the Prophet ﷺ is now making plans for gathering the Sahaba who are going to go on this trip. And he wants to get as many people as possible. So... A part of that story tells us about some people who were invited to go, encouraged to go, but who decided to withhold and not go forth. He rallied some of the Bedouins, the Arab, in the outlying areas surrounding Medina, inviting them to go with them on this Umrah. And he wanted to have as many people as possible with him on the trip because he was also aware that Quraysh might consider this a threat and might try to confront them. So the more, the better. So because of that worry that the Quraysh might attack them upon seeing them make their way south, a number of people held back and didn't want to go. These people were from the Arab 
So that means these are not the elite of the Sahaba. These are the A'rab who, they are Muslim, but their Iman is not that strong. They don't have a lot of time in the company of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa And Allah describes these people in the Qur'an. We think of these dichotomies of, uh, of mu'min, kafir, and munafiq, where in the Medinan community you either have mu'min or munafiq, but you had shades in between. Those who were closer to nifaq, those who were al-murjifun, those who were samma'una lahum, who would lend their ear to the munafiqun, those who had sicknesses in their heart. You had different types of people. This group was from that group. Who? And the iman is da'if, is very weak. So they didn't want to go. And this is because of the weakness of their own iman. Allah Ta'ala also revealed about these people in Surah Al-Fatih. In the same chapter, Allah Ta'ala says, سَيَقُولُ لَكَ الْمُخَلَّفُونَ مِنَ الْأَعْرَابِ شَغَلَتْنَا أَمْوَالُنَا وَأَهْلُونَا فَاسْتَغْفِرْ لَنَا يَقُولُونَ بِأَلْسِنَتِهِمْ مَا لَيْسَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ قُلْ فَمَنْ يَمْلِكُ لَكُمْ مِنَ اللَّهِ شَيْئًا إِنْ أَرَادَ بِكُمْ ضَرًّا أَوْ أَرَادَ بِكُمْ نَفْعًا بَلْ كَانَ اللَّهُ بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ خَبِيرًا بَلْ ظَنَنْتُمْ أَنْ لَنْ يَنْقَلِبَ الرَّسُولُ وَالْمُؤْمِنُونَ إِلَى أَهْلِيهِمْ أَبَدًا وَزُيِّنَ ذَلِكَ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ وَظَنَنْتُمْ ظَنَّ السَّوْ وَكُنْتُمْ قَوْمًا بُورًا the, in this ayah, Allah Ta'ala says that the Bedouin Arabs who stayed behind will say to you, the Prophet wasallam, we were preoccupied with our wealth and our families, so seek forgiveness for us. And, and that, that phrase is important because you have to contrast that with the munafiqun. Because the munafiqun, when it was said to them, Ta'ala, Come, yastaghfir lakum Rasulullah, lawwaru'usahum. Right? When it's told to the munafiqun, come and seek the forgiveness of the Messenger of Allah, uh, they would turn their heads up high and out of arrogance refuse. So these are, just, these are people of weak iman making excuses. So they say with their tongues what is not in their hearts. Allah says, say, who then can stand between you and Allah if in any way, if he intends harm or benefit for you? That's iman. There's no nafi', there's no dar except Allah. No one can bring benefit or harm except Allah Ta'ala wahta. In fact, Allah is all aware of what you do. The truth is you thought that the messenger and the believers would never return to their families again. And that was made appealing in your hearts. You harbored evil thoughts and became a doomed people. So they had these ideas that, okay, if they go out, they're not coming back. Because once they get there, Quraysh are going to surround them. They'll be outnumbered and they'll be attacked and completely wiped out. They're not coming back. So if we go with them, we're not coming back either. And their excuse was, well, we're preoccupied by our wealth, our crops, our families. These things are going on. The timing isn't right for us, so we can't go. But it was all an excuse. Now, in the tafsir works that talk about the tafsir of Surah Al-Fatih, it mentions that they said amongst themselves, these A'rab, he wants us to go to the very nation who came here to kill us. This was not too long after Ahzab. 
He wants us to go to the very nation that came all the way here to kill us. This cannot happen. We will not go marching to our deaths. So let us just tell him some excuse. This is recorded in the Tafasir. Now what's so stunning about this story, it is really something to reflect over, is, well, you know the Sahaba, they're not all equal in rank. There's hierarchies among the Sahaba. So at the top, you have the ten promised paradise. And then you have the Muhajirun. You have the Badriyun. Then you have, in, in that hierarchy, you have those who pledge the Bay'ah of Bay'at Ridwan, which takes place at Hudaybiyah. It takes place in connection with this incident we're going to talk about next week. So in the hierarchy, the best of the Sahaba after the Ten Promised Paradise, after the Badriyun, are uh, Ashab Bay'at Ridwan. Had those people gone, they would have gone from the lowest of the low to some of the most elite and elect of the Sahaba. But, you know, Allah knows. And they didn't go. Had they have gone, that's what would have happened. They would have given that bay'ah. They had an opportunity that they missed, a very uh, critical opportunity. So into the seerah, the Prophet ﷺ is now preparing to head out for the umrah. He makes the ghusl. He puts on the ihram. But he hasn't yet entered the state of ihram. Because you can put on, you can take the ghusl beforehand. You can put on the ihram gab beforehand. You enter the ihram only when you have the niyyah. لَبَيْكَ اللَّهُمَّ عُمْرَةً right? you, you utter the niyyah for ihram and you enter that when you're at the miqat, at that, that resting station. So he puts on the ihram and he rides on his camel, the, the one known as al-qaswa. And he leaves on a Monday in the month of Dhul Qa'dah and he brings his wife Um Salama along with him on this journey. And in total, there were between 1,400 and 1,500 Muslims who went with him. Now, remember, they're going for Umrah. They're not going for war. So they're not bringing armor. They're not bringing the weapons of war. The only weaponry they bring are the weapons anyone would bring when going on a journey like that. Because you have to make sure you can defend yourself against any predators or any immediate threats, but not for a long sustained military campaign or even a battle. So they're setting out from Medina and he goes on the road ahead of the most of the majority. He has 70 camels and cows that are taken on this trip to be readied for sacrifice on behalf of all the people making their Umrah. So they get to Dhul Hulayfa. Does anyone know what Dhul Hulayfa is? It's the Miqat of Ahlul Medina. So if you're in Medina and you want to make Umrah, you're going to stop. Usually the bus stops there. It's a big masjid, a lot of washing facilities. People, you put on your ihram, you can take the ghusl there, although I wouldn't advise it. Better do it in the hotel. People do the ihram there, they utter the niyyah, get back on the bus and they go. So they stopped at Dhul Hulayfa. And there they prayed dhuhr. And they place the qala'id, these garlands, around the necks of the camels and the cows. Why would they do that? They do that because you may bring uh, cows or camels for food. So how do you distinguish between the camels and cows that are for food on the trip and the camels and cows that are for the purpose of the sacrifice after the umrah is done? You put the garlands on. 
And by putting the garlands, you've marked them only for the sacrifice at a later date. There's also a strategic value in doing this too, because by putting the garlands over so many of the camels and cows, it also sends a signal for anyone who is watching them at the distance. They'll see them in ihram. They'll see the animals with the qala'id. And what do they gain from that? Oh, they're coming for umrah. They're not coming for war. They're not coming for any hostilities. Their intended purpose is umrah. They're not coming for a fight. So there's, there's a, a strategic and, and safety aspect in doing this as well. So the Prophet ﷺ didn't just leave it to the ihram garments and the garlands to send that message. He also sent out a spy. And this spy was from the people of Khuza'a by the name of Bishr ibn Sufyan. And his job was to go ahead of the group to Mecca to see what's going on among the people of Mecca and bring back that news. Rasulullah continued with the rest of the Muslims to go to this place called Ghadir al-Ashtat. And when they got there, the spy managed to meet them soon after and reported back what he learned from observing the Meccans. He comes back and says, Ya Rasulullah, the Quraysh have gathered an entire army to come out against you, including slaves, because they intend to wage war on you and prevent you from reaching the Kaaba. So word spreads, and by the time the spy got there, they already found out. This tells you that it's spanning some days in the planning phase. So the Quraysh are preparing to attack them, even though they know they're coming with the intention of Umrah. So this is a huge issue. The Prophet ﷺ then applied the command of Allah, fil amr, Consult them in the matter. And he says, what do you advise, O men? To which Abu Bakr anhu said, Ya Rasulullah, you came out to visit the Kaaba, not wishing to fight anyone. So continue to your destination, and if anyone seeks to prevent you from that, we will fight him. That was the advice of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. Upon which the Prophet sallallahu said, Proceed, bismillah. Continue on the journey, bismillah. Then he asked, who can take us along a different path? Because if they're going to set up an attack, you still want to go but maybe take a different route so you can avoid any force that's gathering to meet you along the way. So he says, who of you can take us along a path other than the one on which the Quraysh will be traveling? And a man from Banu Aslam said, I can, Ya Rasulullah. Someone knew another route. So he takes them along this alternate route, but the alternate route is very rocky and mountainous. It's very steep in places. It was not an easy route compared to the main route. So they're going along this mountain path until they come to this place. It's called uh, Mirar. It's like a trail. Right? And basically, this is a mountain pass that overlooks uh, Hudaybiyah, which we said is a day's walk from Mecca. They're very close. They get to this trail, and the Prophet ﷺ is riding on Al-Qaswa, the she-camel. And when they're at the trail, the, the camel all of a sudden just kneels right on the spot. Middle of the trail, just kneels. And the other Sahaba are now chiding the camel like, come on, get up, what's going on? 
by telling the camel to get up, but it's not budging. And they said, this camel, Qaswa, it's just stopping for no reason at all. What's going on? And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, no, it's not. It's not like her to do that. Rather, she is commanded like the elephant of Abraha was commanded. So it's operating under divine orders to simply halt. He says, by the one in whose hand is my soul, whenever they ask me for a way in which to honor Allah's commands, I'll give it to them. So this is the command of Allah. If this is going to be something to avoid conflict, we'll see what's going on. So he now directs the camel al-Qaswa to get up, but then he leaves it to pick whatever direction they take. Very similar to another incident, isn't it? Where else did this happen? In the hijrah, when the camel pinpointed the area for, for the masjid in, in the home of uh, Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu anhu. So instead of going towards Mecca, it goes towards Hudaybiyah. And it goes to this area, and it has a well. And that well had a little bit of water, not enough to really water the animals and all of the individuals on the trip. So they drank from this well water. They're camping there now at Hudaybiyah. As they're taking out the water from the well, it dries up. What are they going to do now? And they complained to the Prophet ﷺ about the lack of water. So he asked someone to give them an arrow, to give him an arrow. He takes the arrow and he goes to the ground near the well and he plants it into the ground like this. Upon which water began to flow up from the well and around the well and everyone had the water. The camels had the water. Everyone was satisfied and no one was going back for more. It was enough. They were satisfied. This was a miracle that Allah Ta'ala created at his hands in that moment. Meanwhile, we have another individual. I know the names get confusing. I wouldn't worry too much about it. Another individual by the name of Budair ibn Warqa al-Khuza'i. Budair ibn Warqa al-Khuza'i, he approached the, with a group of men and he says to the Prophet I saw Ka'b ibn Lu'ay and Amr ibn Lu'ay encamped beside the waters of Al-Hudaybiyah further out. And they have brought with them the she-camels that are still nursing their young, and they plan to fight you and prevent you from approaching the Kaaba. So this Budair ibn Warqa al-Khuza'i is from Khuza'a. And the spy that was sent to collect information about the Meccans was also from Khuza'a. Khuza'a have this very interesting role where they play scouts and spies and you know, even though not all of them are Muslim, they have a position of allegiance and they're allies with the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims. They were not antagonistic at all. And so he tells them what's going on. They're out there and they're not with the main body of Quraysh, but they have an intention that if they see you, they're going to fight you. So the Prophet ﷺ says in response to this, we have not come out to fight anyone but rather to perform their Umrah. As far as Quraysh is concerned, they have been exhausted by war and they stand to gain nothing through war. If they wish, this is a very important statement he's making. This comes up later. He says, if they wish, I am willing to delay my Umrah for a period of time. 
That phrase is so important to the story because you're going to see later on what happens. He says, if they wish, I am willing to delay my Umrah for a period in return for their allowing me to deal with my people as I see fit. If I am victorious and they wish to enter treaties as others have done, they are free to do so, in which case they will most certainly be relieved. Otherwise, I swear by the one who holds my life in his hands that I will fight them to the death over this matter, then let Allah carry out his will. So he is willing to enter into negotiations for a peace treaty. And if they insist on fighting, then there's no, there's no other alternative. They're willing to do that, even though they're outnumbered and outarmed. So Budail, who hears this, he says, I'll go and tell them what you said. So Budail then goes out to Mecca and he tells the Quraysh exactly what the Prophet ﷺ said about the prospect of a sulh, a treaty. And if there's no sulh and they insist on fighting, he communicated that willingness to also fight if it comes to that. So when Quraysh hear this message that Budail conveyed from the Prophet ﷺ, a man by the name of Urwa ibn Mas'ud stood up and among Quraysh and proposed to act as an ambassador on their behalf and go to the Prophet ﷺ to hear directly what he is proposing. Now Urwa ibn Mas'ud, you know, he, he becomes Muslim, right? And there's a hadith, there's a few hadith from him, and we're gonna hear some of those next week. But he is proposing to act as the ambassador on behalf of Quraysh. And as an ambassador, you have aman, you have security. And he goes and acts as an ambassador. And being in the company of the Muslims, he gets to observe firsthand, for the very first time, how they are around him. Their adab, their etiquette, and their reverence for him. And that becomes something that moves him and eventually becomes the impetus for him becoming Muslim. So he proposes to be this ambassador, and they say that, you know, go ahead, you can be the ambassador. So he goes, makes his way to where the Prophet ﷺ is, and he hears exactly what Budail had communicated to Quraysh. And that's where we have to stop, because now we have this role of Urwa, and that's the lead up to other things that happen. So. Next week, inshallah, we'll continue Urwa's dialogue in mediation. We'll then talk about the delegate to Mecca, who it was rumored that he had been killed, and that led to the Bayat al-Radwan, and then we have the unfolding of the entire sulh, or peace treaty, that became known as the peace treaty of al-Hudaybiyah. And inshallah, we'll continue that next week. والله ورسوله أعلم وصلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم